Science, Scholarship, and Intellectual Virtues, A Guide to What Higher Education Should Be Like, by Barry Schwartz. In the philosophy of science, it became canonical, following Popper, to distinguish between what is called the context or logic of discovery and the context or logic of justification. What scientists study, and thus what they discover, may be suffused with moral values and commitments. But how scientists study what they study, and how they justify their claims to truth, is not. Discovery is embedded with values, but justification is all about facts, standards of evidence and analysis, and logical inference. And facts and values should not be confused. Much work that followed on Popper's distinction made clear that the line between discovery and justification, and thus between values and facts, is not as bright and clear as he suggested. In this paper, I will argue that the distinction should be viewed as problematic. Indeed, I will argue that scientific activity, both discovery and justification, relies on values. Indeed, all scholarship relies on values, and educational institutions should be focusing their efforts on nurturing those values. My argument is inspired by Aristotle. For Aristotle, all the intellectual attributes that make for excellence in scholarship or anything else, have a fundamental moral dimension. Following Aristotle, I will identify a set of intellectual values and discuss their importance. I will suggest that science, and scholarship more generally, embodies these values and that education, done right, nurtures them. My list of intellectual virtues is by no means exhaustive, but it is meant to illustrate what I think education should aspire to. It has always been taken as self-evident that higher education is good for the students and for society at large, and that colleges and universities are doing an excellent job of providing it. No more. Dark storm clouds have been gathering over colleges and universities and over the scholars and scientists who work there. Commentators are expressing serious doubts, both about whether universities are teaching what they should be teaching, and about whether they are teaching it well. Demands for accountability are everywhere, spurred in part, at least in the U.S., by the extremely high cost of university education and the trillion dollars in collective debt that students have amassed. What are the students getting for all that money? And what should they be getting? Several years ago, the administration of President Barack Obama launched an admirable initiative to make college more affordable and accessible to the middle class. A part of that initiative was the insistence that universities be held accountable, that federal aid to universities be tied to measures of how good a job of educating students they were doing. And this accounting was to be done with measures of both graduation rates and earnings profiles of graduates. The concern with earnings profiles was an attempt to measure value added by university education, not metaphorically, but literally, by asking whether the cost of an education pays for itself. Recently, the Brookings Institution moved us a further step in that direction when it introduced a rating system that ranks colleges by mid-career earnings, student loan repayments, and occupational earnings power. Many academics regard this reliance on financial outcomes as an indicator of educational quality as philistinism, but one cannot reasonably expect students or their parents to shoulder a quarter of a million dollars in college costs and being different to what they will be earning when they graduate.
And besides, if earning capacity is not what we should be taking as a measure of educational value, then what is? Universities just can't get away with smug silence on that question any longer. Society demands an answer. Institutions that offer specialized training in specific professions have an answer. We're training the next generation of physicists, computer scientists, engineers, nurses, accountants, physical therapists, teachers, doctors, etc., etc. Whether universities do it well or not may be a legitimate issue, but that they should be doing it is not much in dispute. But for programs in the liberal arts, the answers are not so straightforward. Defenders of the liberal arts often suggest that their goal is less to teach the specifics of any particular discipline or profession than to teach students how to think. It is hard to quarrel with this goal, and it is echoed by those in the world of practical affairs who frequently intone about how fast our technological world is changing and how important it is to have a flexible and innovative workforce. Just as the academy wants to teach students how to think, employers want to hire students who know how to think. The trouble with this goal is that it doesn't say enough. What does it mean to know how to think? Is there one right way to think that applies to all the problems people will face in their professional and personal lives? If so, what is it? Every educator wants their students to learn how to think, but nobody really knows what it means to know how to think. We have to do better than this. We have to specify in greater detail what learning how to think requires and then ask ourselves if our institutional structures and practices are allowing us to meet this goal. My aim is to do precisely that, by discussing intellectual virtues. Intellectual virtues No doubt, knowing how to think demands a set of cognitive skills, quantitative ability, conceptual flexibility, analytical acumen, expressive clarity, But beyond these skills, I believe that learning how to think requires the development of a set of intellectual virtues, virtues that will make people good students, good employees and professionals, and good citizens. And cultivating these virtues is just as important in programs of specialized training as it is in the liberal arts. I use the word virtues as opposed to, say, skills deliberately because each of them has an essential moral dimension. In what follows, I offer a short list of such virtues. It is incomplete, but it may help to get a productive conversation started. Love of truth. Scientists, scholars, and students need to love the truth to be good at what they do. They need to love the truth because discovering it is the point of their efforts, and because knowing the truth matters. It matters to diagnosing illness, It matters to seeking justice in court. It matters to designing bridges. It matters to developing curricula that teach math. It matters to identifying social structures that perpetuate racism and class division. And it matters to understanding and producing works of imagination. Without this intellectual virtue, students will only get things right because we are punishing them for getting them wrong. In the times in which we live, the desire to find the truth rather than truthiness, cannot be taken for granted. It has become intellectually fashionable to attack the very notion of truth. You have your truth and I have mine. You have one truth today, but you may have a different one tomorrow. Everything is relative, a matter of perspective. 
People who claim to know the truth, it is argued, are in reality just using their position of power and privilege in society to shove their version of things down other people's throats. This turn to relativism is, in part, a reflection of something good and important that has happened to higher education and intellectual inquiry in general. People have come to realize that much of what the intellectual elite thought was the truth was distorted by limitations of perspective. Slowly, the voices of the excluded have been welcomed into the conversation, and their perspectives have enriched our understanding enormously. But the reason they have enriched our understanding is that they have given the rest of us an important piece of the truth that was previously invisible to us. Not their truth, but the truth. It is troubling to see how quickly an appreciation that each of us can only attain a partial grasp of the truth degrades into a view that there really isn't any truth out there to be grasped. It may seem that science, in particular, has not been affected by this sort of relativism. But that is not the case. Many have taken Kuhn's landmark work, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, to indicate that even in science, the power and position of received views has dominated and distorted a more pristine conception of truth. And if this can happen in science, it can happen anywhere. Kuhn himself was horrified to see his argument that there is no logic of scientific theory choice taken to mean that there were no standards of truth at all. Finding the truth is hard. There are countless pitfalls along the way, as a current replication crisis that is plaguing my own discipline, psychology, can attest. Relativism makes intellectual life easier. When a fellow student says something in class with which you disagree, you need not worry about finding a way to challenge that view and make a case for your own. There's no need to struggle through disagreements to get to the bottom of things if there's no bottom of things. Everyone is entitled to an opinion. The great democratization of knowledge. I think that love of truth is an intellectual virtue in part because its absence has serious moral consequences. Relativism chips away at our most fundamental respect for one another as human beings. When people have respect for the truth, they seek it and speak it in dialogue with one another. Once truth becomes suspect, Relations between people become little more than efforts at manipulation. Instead of trying to enlighten or persuade people by giving them reasons to see things as we do, we can use any form of influence we think will work. This is what spin is all about in our modern political discourse. This is what Stephen Colbert was getting at when he coined the term truthiness, and what Frankfurt emphasized in distinguishing lying from bullshit. Liars, Frankfurt argued, care about what is true, but violate standards of truth. Bullshitters, in contrast, are indifferent to the truth status of their claims. What matters to them is truthiness. Fair-mindedness. Students need to be fair-minded in evaluating the arguments of others. There is a very substantial literature in psychology on what is called motivated reasoning, our almost uncanny ability to italicize evidence that is consistent with what we already believe, or want to believe, and ignore evidence that is inconsistent. This may be especially true in the moral domain, as psychologist Jonathan Haidt pointed out in his book The Righteous Mind. According to Haidt, when making moral judgments, we use reason more as a lawyer who is making a case than as a judge who is deciding one. Fair-mindedness enables us to face the limits of what we know, it encourages us to own up to mistakes. 
and it enables us to acknowledge uncongenial truths about the world. Perseverance Scientists, scholars, and students need the intellectual virtue of perseverance, since little that is worth knowing or doing comes easily. At the moment, we're cultivating the opposite. Worried that our students suffer from collective ADD and will give us bad course ratings if we make them struggle, we are dumbing down our courses to cater to short attention spans. We assign a TED Talk instead of a journal article, a popular and short book instead of a scholarly one. We don't appreciate that perseverance, or the related attribute grit, studied extensively by psychologist Angela Duckworth, is more like a muscle that needs to be developed than a natural resource that needs to be excavated. Courage Scientists, scholars, and students need intellectual courage, too. They need it to stand up for what they believe is true, sometimes in the face of mass disagreement from others, including people in authority like their professors or journal editors, and they need it to take intellectual risks, to pursue intellectual paths that might not pan out. Perspective-taking and empathy Scientists, scholars, and students need to be able to take the perspective of others and empathize. This is especially true in an age in which almost all substantial work is collaborative. It may seem odd to list perspective-taking and empathy as an intellectual virtue, but it takes a great deal of intellectual sophistication to get perspective-taking right. Young children feel for an age mate who is upset, but are clueless about how to comfort her. And teachers at all levels must overcome what is called the curse of knowledge. If they can't remind themselves of what they were like before they understood something well, they will be at a loss to explain it to their students. Everything is obvious once you know it. Perspective-taking and empathy pay enormous dividends in the professions. In his book Critical Decisions, Peter Ubel makes a compelling case that whereas the physician paternalism of the old days is happily gone, it has been replaced by an equally inadequate model of patient autonomy, in which doctors present the data, and patients make the decisions. Though it is true that doctors should not tell prostate cancer patients whether to have surgery or not, it is also true that the patients will not be able to figure it out on their own either. Good decisions require both medical expertise and an understanding of the patient's unique life circumstances. They require shared decision-making. But for that sort of doctor-patient conversation to go well, doctors have to be good listeners who are able to take the perspective of their patients. Moreover, medicine in the developed world has increasingly become a matter of managing chronic disease rather than curing acute disease. But the management of chronic disease often makes difficult demands on patients to change how they live. A printed list of lifestyle changes is not worth the paper it is printed on. Most people know what to do. The question is how do we motivate them to do it? It takes empathic, perspective-taking medical providers to get patients to work as partners in managing their diseases. Similarly in law, knowledge of the law may be the key to effective, zealous advocacy, but by itself, it will not tell lawyers what they have to know with clients who need to be counseled. To be a good counselor, a lawyer needs to know the client as well as the law. And in education, good teachers eschew the one-size-fits-all lesson plans and opt, instead, to reach each student where she is. But if the teacher cannot get inside the head of the student, 
The one-size-fits-all lesson plan is the best he can do. Wisdom Finally, scholars, scientists, and students need the virtue that Aristotle called practical wisdom. Any of the intellectual virtues I have mentioned can be carried to an extreme. Wisdom is what enables us to find the balance between timidity and recklessness, between carelessness and obsessiveness, between flightiness and stubbornness, between speaking up and listening up, between trust and skepticism, between empathy and detachment. And wisdom is also what enables us to make difficult decisions among intellectual virtues that may conflict. Being empathic, fair, and open-minded often rubs up against fidelity to the truth. Schwartz and Sharp identified wisdom as the master virtue. In acknowledgement of the importance of wisdom, a field of wisdom science has been growing in prominence in psychology, as has an emphasis on educating for wisdom. My argument for wisdom as a manager of the other intellectual virtues has a parallel in the arguments of T.S. Kuhn. Almost half a century ago, Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions changed the way people think about science. The lesson that many non-scientists drew from Kuhn was that truth was arbitrary and that scientific change was as much about power and intellectual fashion as it was about progress. Kuhn was appalled by this conclusion and tried to make clear that just because scientific advance was not rule-governed did not mean that it was arbitrary. Instead, scientists adhered to what Kuhn called epistemic values, values like simplicity, accuracy, comprehensiveness, and fruitfulness, that made some theories better than others. Values are not rules, so scientists can disagree about how important each value is and how well a given explanation exemplifies each value. But scientists do tend to converge on allegiances to certain theories for good and non-arbitrary reasons. This convergence reflects the collective wisdom of the scientists. I think my list of intellectual virtues plays the same role in understanding good thinking generally that epistemic values play in understanding good science. Intellectual virtues in the service of the right motives. A quote by Aristotle. Every art and every inquiry, and similarly every action and pursuit, is thought to aim at some good, and for this reason the good has rightly been declared to be that at which all things aim. Now, as there are many actions, arts, and sciences, their ends are also many. The end of the medical art is health, that of shipbuilding, a vessel, that of strategy, victory, and that of economics, wealth. As important as it is to cultivate intellectual virtues like the ones I just discussed, Perhaps even more important is the cultivation of the appropriate motivation in the deployment of those virtues. Absent the motivation to do the right thing, intellectual virtues can be used to manipulate and control others in the service of one's own interests. It should be said that for most modern virtue theorists among philosophers, as for Aristotle, one cannot deploy virtues with bad motives because the motivation to act virtuously is inextricably linked to the virtuous action itself. Among psychologists, however, it has become customary to treat actions and the motives behind them as distinct, leaving open the possibility that one can do the right thing for the wrong reason. While acknowledging that for Aristotle, doing the right thing for the wrong reason would not be virtuous, 
I think it is important to maintain the distinction between motive and action because so much of the modern discourse presupposes this distinction. For Aristotle, as evidenced in the quote above, each activity had its own proper end or telos, and virtuous people were expected to be pursuing that end. In modern dress, we might make a distinction between motives that are internal to an activity and those for which the activity is merely instrumental. Internal motives are the activity's proper telos, whereas instrumental motives suggest an activity that has gone astray. A university scientist discovers a piece of truth, but also gets a salary, tenure, and promotion. Seeking the truth is internal to the scientific activity and its proper telos. The other consequences are merely instrumental. The coming of the Industrial Revolution brought with it a framework for understanding motivation that was almost entirely instrumental. Without a paycheck, people would not work. With a paycheck, it hardly mattered what work people did. We see this presumption in Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, and in Frederick Winslow Tyler, the father of what came to be called scientific management. I think this view of the relation between means and ends continues to dominate modern thinking about human motivation. To get CEOs to serve the interests of the company, give them company shares as a significant part of compensation. To get students to work hard in school, give them frequent tests and grades and other rewards if they do well. To get car salespeople to put all their efforts into closing deals, pay them commissions. And to make college professors care about how well they're educating students, make their professional success contingent on favorable student evaluations. There's little doubt that much human activity is instrumental in just this way. But pure instrumentality is not the only possible relation between means and ends. For Aristotle, it was a human telos to pursue excellence, and what excellence meant was very much specific to the activity in question. The telos of the builder was to produce excellent buildings. The telos of the doctor was to cure disease. The telos of the athlete was to produce outstanding athletic performance. Of course, in each of these cases, the performer might earn a livelihood, but he was earning a livelihood that was incidental, and achieving the activity-specific telos that was central to human activity, at least among people who rightly understood the point of their activities. Psychologists have long assumed that to understand human behavior, we need to know not only what someone does, but why he or she does it. Motives matter. Different types of motives have different effects on behavior even when the motives seem to point in the same direction. For example, Lepper et al. showed that giving nursery school children awards for drawing made them less interested in drawing, which they like to do, and led them to draw less interesting pictures than if they were not given awards. And DC showed that giving college students money for solving puzzles made them less interested in working on such puzzles later on when the money was not available. Similarly, Ganesi and Rastashini showed that adding a fine to the social sanctions already associated with parents coming late to pick up their children from nursery school weakened those social sanctions and increased lateness rather than strengthening those social sanctions and reducing lateness. In the first two cases, it might be said that the rewards that were added to the already enjoyable activity of drawing and puzzle solving instrumentalized the activities, turning play into work and thus made the activities less enjoyable. Analogously, 
The fine for lateness instrumentalized that activity and gave parents permission to come late, since they were paying for it. Schools and workplaces are full of systems that attempt to tap people's internal motives to act while also providing rewards intended to spark instrumental motives to pursue the same acts. Yet, as shown by the studies of nursery school children's drawing and nursery school parents coming to fetch their children, and in a direct challenge to this assumption, a substantial body of research suggests that far from boosting motivation, holding instrumental motives can undermine whatever internal motives may have been operating, leading to drops in overall motivation, persistence, and performance. This effect, labeled the motivational crowding out effect by economists, and the overjustification effect by psychologists, has been demonstrated across a wide range of contexts. The idea of a practice. I think the distinction between internal and instrumental motives can be profitably addressed from a framework developed by the neo Aristotelian philosopher Alastair McIntyre. In After Virtue, McIntyre introduces the idea of a practice, which he defines as any coherent and complex form of socially established cooperative human activity through which goods internal to that form of activity are realized in the course of trying to achieve those standards of excellence which are appropriate to, and partly definitive of, that form of activity, with the result that human powers to achieve excellence and human conceptions of the ends and goods involved are systematically extended. Importantly, what constitutes excellence in a practice is itself defined by the standards internal to the practice, largely established by the practitioners themselves. Thus, one is perfectly free to say something like, I don't know much about art, but I know what I like. But one is not entitled to expect that anyone, especially artists, will care what you like or interpret your likes and dislikes as an indication of the quality of the art. The quality of a search engine in presenting users with exactly the information they seek need have nothing to do with the profits it generates for shareholders. Software designers engaged in the practice seek search engine excellence. Shareholders, and software designers who are not practitioners, seek profitability. The concept of excellence is necessarily imprecise. First, if McIntyre is right, excellence is a moving target, since as practices develop, the standards of excellence among practitioners change. And second, each practice has standards of excellence that are peculiar to it. There is no abstract standard of excellence that unites instances of excellence across different practices. Moreover, there is room for disagreement, both among practitioners and between practitioners and non-practitioners, about what excellence means. Nonetheless, however imprecise excellence may be, in McIntyre's and Aristotle's telling, only activities that have standards of excellence can be practices. Not all human activities are practices. The line between what is and is not a practice is sometimes fuzzy, and sometimes activities may be practices at one point in their development, but not at another. But I think the differences between prototypical practices and mere instrumental activities are clear. I also think McIntyre's framework enables us to discern whether a given participant in a practice is a true practitioner or not. Finally, I think McIntyre's framework helps us to discern whether an entire practice has lost its way, 
by encouraging participants to pursue the wrong ends and celebrating those who do so successfully. But the possibility of misdirected practices also raises a challenge. If practitioners themselves define standards of excellence in a practice, then it may fall to people outside the practice to judge whether the practice has lost its way. To protect against practices losing their way, it is of critical importance that while we cultivate love of truth, perseverance, wisdom, and other intellectual virtues, we also cultivate the motives that are internal to the practice of being a student, a scholar, or a scientist. Proper attention must be devoted to transmitting the telos of scholarship, of engineering, of medicine, of law, of epidemiology. At the same time, we are training the particular intellectual skills that such disciplines require. Are colleges and universities schools for the cultivation of intellectual virtue? In my view, the way to defend the value of a university education is to defend the importance of intellectual virtues like the ones on my list, and then show that the education we provide is successful at cultivating these virtues. Cultivation of intellectual virtues is not meant to be in contrast to training in specific occupations. On the contrary, cultivation of intellectual virtues will contribute to such training, helping to create a workforce that is willing to take initiative, flexible, able to admit to and learn from mistakes, and open to change. People with intellectual virtues will persist when the going gets tough, ask for help when they need it, provide help when others need it, and not settle for expedient but inaccurate solutions to current problems. Workplaces need people who have intellectual virtues, but are often not in a good position to train them. Colleges and universities should be doing this training for them. Are they? I think rather few colleges and universities think systematically about how to encourage the intellectual virtues. Mostly, their cultivation is left a chance, not to institutional design. Aristotle argued, rightly in my view, that virtues are developed through practice and by watching those who have already mastered the relevant virtues display them. How do university teachers display intellectual virtues? What questions they ask in class teaches students how to ask questions. How they pursue dialogue with students models reflectiveness. Professors teach students when and how to interrupt by when and how they interrupt. Professors teach them how to listen by how carefully they listen. If they see their teacher admitting that she doesn't know something, it encourages intellectual honesty as well as humility. Teachers are always modeling, and the students are always watching. It is hard to model intellectual virtues when one is lecturing to a room of 300 students, and I do not envision a time when small classes will be commonplace at large institutions. Most lack the financial resources, and many universities that may have the financial resources lack the will. Nonetheless, I think there are practices that can enhance the cultivation of virtue, even if they are imperfect substitutes for the teacher-student dialogue. In Poetic Justice, Martha Nussbaum makes the point, in discussing virtue more generally, that narrative fiction is often a good tool for displaying people living virtuous or not-so-virtuous lives in a way that provides vividness and specificity that didactic classroom instruction lacks. I think providing students with narratives of people displaying intellectual virtues may be a good way to make the best of student-faculty ratios that are inhospitable 
to having professors model these virtues for their students. Conclusion The challenges to colleges and universities are coming from all sides. Federal programs in the U.S. want to make sure that future earnings justify current costs. Parents faced with six-figure tuition bills join the chorus, as do students faced with back-breaking debt. And as if more pressure were needed, employers concerned with maintaining good quarterly results want to be able to hire people who can do the job right out of the box. They want plug-and-play employees. I'm not sure that even institutions inclined to resist this pressure will be able to. To do so, colleges and universities must articulate their value added in real detail and to do it in a way that makes clear that students who have this training will not only be better people and better citizens, but also be better professionals and employees. I believe, in short, that the right way for colleges and universities to defend themselves against current challenges is by describing themselves as nurturers of intellectual virtues and then devoting themselves to that task. David Brooks, in his book The Road to Character, distinguishes between what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. The former are the skills that get you good grades, good jobs, nice houses, and hefty bank accounts, whereas the latter are what turn you into a good person. I think Brooks is wrong to imply that resume virtues are all that we need to produce excellence at work, or that eulogy virtues are for what comes after one's work has ceased. Eulogy virtues are just as important to becoming good doctors, good lawyers, good teachers, good nurses, good scientists, good physical therapists, and even good bankers, as are resume virtues. And they are also important to becoming good children, parents, spouses, friends, and citizens. As Aristotle knew, virtue is a success term, and it is needed for material success just as it is needed for moral success.